In medieval Europe, there was a form of torture used called the rack. I don't know if you're familiar with the rack, but it was used to try to force confessions for heresy and crime. What they would do is they had a big wooden table, and they would take somebody, and they would lay them on the table, and then they would tie their arms and their legs in the four corners of the tables. Not to the corners, but on either end of the table, there were rollers, and they would tie ropes to those rollers and then to their arms and legs, and those rollers had levers, and they'd begin to to turn the rollers. And what that would do is it would give them, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to the chiropractor and they put you on that machine where it stretches you out to give them a nice stretch for about the first couple of minutes. And then after that, it started to get a little painful because they kept stretching and stretching. Now, I won't get into the gory details of what could happen if the person was unwilling to confess, but we'll just say that there were a few that didn't leave whole. They didn't leave uh, the same as they came in, if you get what I mean. And last week, we or actually a couple of weeks ago now, we started a series through 1 Corinthians, which the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which was in Greece, and the name of the series is Cross Church, because we'll begin to see, even in the passage that we're going to look at today, that the, the central place that the cross held in Paul's thinking, in his life, and in how he thought the church should function and be shaped, and what his expectations were for the body of Christ. Two weeks ago, I spoke to you about preparing for repairs that God wants to make to our lives and to our church, and that's because 1 Corinthians was a letter written to address a number of issues that were happening within the body of Christ in the church in Corinth. And today, we're going to jump right into what was one of the central issues that Paul needed to address. And we know that it's a big issue because it actually takes up the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's in addressing this issue that Paul exalts the cross, and he applies it to his own life, and he also then applies it to the church in Corinth. And the issue that Paul addresses at greater length than any other in this book is the issue of division. There was division between members of the church. There was division between members of the church and Paul himself. And so we're going to read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, which is our passage for today. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul will imagine that the church is like a body, with each member contributing something different, yet all working together to accomplish the same purposes. And since the church is a body, we can imagine that the church in Corinth, which had divisions among it, was like a church on the rack, being pulled in many different directions so that it was in danger, if it was not careful, of actually being pulled 
apart. They were divided on a number of things that we'll find throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, but the issue that Paul addresses first is division over personalities, preferences, and pride. Paul received a report from someone named, otherwise known to us, who is, who is named Chloe, and she sent people to Paul, and they reported that the church was divided concerning leaders and their styles. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And we know who Paul was. Apollos was a gifted teacher and a preacher that came to Corinth after Paul. Paul speaks highly of Apollos and even encouraged him to go to Corinth, and so Paul and Apollos weren't at odds. But apparently some in the church took such a liking to Apollos' more polished style that they began comparing him to Paul, and a division occurred, not between Paul and Apollos, but between people who preferred Paul and people who preferred Apollos. Cephas is another name for um, for the apostle Peter, so we know who he was, a disciple of Christ. We don't know for certain if Peter was actually ever in Corinth or if Paul was just using him as an example here. And then, of course, we know who Christ was. Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Christ. And divisions over these leaders can sound maybe a little distant or difficult for us to understand in practical terms since we don't know these people personally except for the relationship we have with Jesus. So it kind of might be helpful for us to imagine why people were attaching themselves to particular leaders in the manner that they were. We don't know 100% for sure, but it's likely that people could have been thinking something like this. Well, I follow Paul. I'm with the founder of this church. I remember how things used to be. He was straightforward and direct. He wasn't flashy. It was just the gospel, and it was better in the good old days of Paul. We need to get back to how things used to be. Or I follow Apollos. He's relevant. He knows what's going on and how to relate it to where we are. He's not afraid of the future. He's younger and able to understand what we're going through now, and he speaks in a more engaging way. He really looks the part for the people we want to reach. He's contemporary. He's with the times. Or, I follow Cephas. Peter is the real deal. He was with Jesus during his whole ministry, and his teaching is sound. We need to be doctrinally pure, and Peter is the one who can keep us anchored to the tradition of the church. Doctrine is the most important thing in the church, so we need to attach ourselves directly to the source. We should get back to singing hymns and preaching good theology, or I follow Christ. And this this one sounds right, at least, doesn't it? Sounds good, except this is just what we might call a Jesus juke. A Jesus juke is when someone tries to one-up you spiritually by taking the conversation in an even more serious or spiritual direction than you were so that they look a little bit more spiritual than you are. They go around what you are trying to say to make themselves seem spiritual. They slap the label, label Jesus on their own preferences in order to make it look like what they prefer is the more spiritual option, and probably most Christians have been guilty of this at one point or another. Uh, Notice that Paul doesn't praise this group. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you guys who say you follow Christ, you're in the right, you're the ones who have it right. He doesn't praise this group as if they got it right. They were just using Jesus for their one-upmanship. They weren't helping bring unity in Christ. They were using Christ in an attempt to appear better than others. Not unlike people do today, the people in Corinth had attached themselves 
to preferences that were based on personalities and speaking styles and their own pride. And their hands were tied to four different ropes and they were being stretched apart and unless they could untie themselves, they risked the church in Corinth being torn apart. Do you think this ever happens today? Think churches are ever torn apart by issues that are actually not related to Christ, they might slap the Christian label on it, but are actually related to issues of preference, pride, and personality? Can it ever happen in, in our church that believers could be divided from one another based not so much on Jesus and really a, a doctrinal error or an issue of sin, but based on issues of preference? I think that it probably does happen and maybe sometimes we couch it in terms that sound really good. We might say that we're with Jesus, that we're really concerned about him or about good doctrine. We're concerned about reaching new people, but really we're just tied to our preferences that are pulling us apart. Sometimes we attach such significance to our preferences that we forget that they really are just preferences. We make them sacred and we think that everyone else should enjoy what I enjoy. And I always shake my head when I hear a story about a fight breaking out in a sports stadium or a riot when a team loses and their fans riot in the streets. I think, how can people be so upset about a game? Can they not see that it is just a game? Why can't they understand that they are far more alike than they are different? Can't they separate their identity from a sports team? They aren't even on that team. If the team loses, they lose nothing unless they've been doing betting on the team, which they shouldn't be. But if the team loses, they lose nothing. When the team wins, they gain nothing. They've added nothing to the team. But somehow, they've so tied themselves to this preference, usually just based on where they happen to be born, that they are willing to mock others and sometimes even beat, break, and burn in response to something that happens. But how much more heartbreaking is it when a church is torn apart by preferences over songs and clothes and styles and personalities and programs how much more devastating is it than burning and riding in a city when a church who should represent the wholeness of Jesus is torn apart by things and they lose their witness in the community, not by something of substance, but because of pride. We can be like two children both refusing to play together until one apologizes. And we all think that we're in the right we all think that we're more spiritual. We've attached ourselves to the better teacher, the better doctrine, the best style, the best method, the best program. But then Paul asks this cutting question. Is Christ divided? Can he be portioned out and given to one group and not another? Does he really belong to one group of, of people with this preference and not to a group of people with another preference? Is he only represented by one leader or one doctrine or one style of preaching? Is Jesus really divided? And the point is not that there's never something which could cause a break or should cause a break. Denying Christ, false teaching, refusal to address sin. These are all things that we have to consider and, and think about and they have to be dealt with. But what Paul will point out in these initial chapters of his letter is that we must be aware that we don't take matters of personality, preference, and pride and turn them into matters that divide us. We must be able to distinguish between 
real matters of spiritual and doctrinal concern and our own preferences so as not to create division in the body of Christ. And the Corinthian church was not divided primarily over real concerns of belief and doctrine and teaching, though there were some things that Paul will address later in the book, but they were split into multiple fragments by preference and a power struggle. They needed to recognize that what held them together was far more significant than what was pulling them apart. And more than that, they needed to recognize that what held them together was actually opposite the motives and desires that were tearing them apart. They should have been united by Jesus. We should be united by Jesus. So what insight does Paul give us in this passage for how we can be united in Christ and not be torn apart? Notice how Paul addresses and he appeals to the church in Corinth. He calls them brothers. In verses 10 and 11, Paul refers to the church as his family, as brothers in Christ. He wasn't just talking to men, so he's using this familial term. It means uh, just talking to, to brothers and sisters, to men and women in the church. And that may strike us as just a manner of address, like calling somebody bro or something like that, or hey dude, or whatever. But some of these people had decided that Paul was not good enough for them. They did not think that he should have any authority in their church or say in their church, even though he was the apostle who preached and founded that church. They didn't think he was eloquent, that his personality was strong enough. They did not think that he should have any say. And yet, Paul addresses them as family. In fact, Paul uses the word brothers to address them 38 times in this letter. He calls them brothers and appeals to them. This was no mere greeting. It wasn't a nicety to Paul. It's how he thought about God's people, and it's how we should think of one another as well. You can treat the church like family. For most, family relationships are stronger. They're considered sacred. Now, I know that there are dysfunctional families, but for most families, They consider their ties to other members of their family to contain something that's a little bit stronger than their ties to just friends or to to just acquaintances, don't they? And of course, we know families that don't fit that bill, but by and large, that's true, and there's a greater level of loyalty, there's a greater level of responsibility that they feel toward one another than the people outside. And as such, that provides security, it gives comfort, it gives a, a sense of identity, even when there are disagreements or failures to meet expectations within the family. I was thinking about this at our Valentine's date night here at the church. One of the things that I love about marriage and love about my marriage to Andrea is that I know she's on my side. And she knows better than anyone else what's wrong with me. She knows my faults. She knows my flaws. She knows the failures that I have. And yet, I don't ever doubt she's on my side. Sometimes, like any two people, we'll have a disagreement. And yet, never in our hearts or minds is there any thought this disagreement could lead to tearing us apart. Because we have decided we're going to fight for one another and not against one another. And so we don't ever have a, a thought where, hey, this is, this is, this is not good. This, is, this could really tear our marriage apart. That, that just doesn't happen. And that's what family does. It brings a sense of safety and of identity to people so that even when there are disagreements, they say, this is not a core issue that should tear us apart, but we will work through this and we will be stronger together. Our relationship is more important than that we always agree on everything or that I always get my way. And wouldn't it be great if we could apply a similar idea to our church? 
That because of Jesus, we have been made children of God, and as such, we're part of the same family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're biased toward, not against, but toward one another. Yes, there are disagreements. No, we do not always see eye to eye. There are times when we struggle to work out our differences, but we are not fighting with one another. We are fighting for one another. We are together. We're biased toward one another. The relationship is more important than being right or getting our own ways. Sometimes in church relationships, we will let things divide us that we would never allow to divide our families. The colors on the wall, the children's curriculum, the music style, the choice of dress, the personality of a particular person, or a style, or a preaching, or, or, or what this person said in the hallway, or what that person said. We take offense at what people uh, prefer against what we prefer, as if the fact that they enjoy something different than we do means that they don't like us, or worse, that they don't love Jesus. And we wouldn't do those things to our families, at least not if you are a decent sort of person. You wouldn't do that to your family. You would not treat them that way if you have a healthy relationship with them. But can you imagine telling your wife that you refuse to sleep in the same room with her because of the color she chose to paint the wall? Can you imagine telling your child that it's probably best that you avoid one another because they listen to contemporary music? Can you imagine a parent allowing a child to pout and avoid them because the parent wanted to listen to older music? I hope not. That shouldn't happen in a family. They should be able to work their differences out so that they remain together, working in the same direction. And if we want to be united by Jesus, we should think of one another as family. I love the familial advice that the Apostle Paul gave to a younger disciple who was leading in a church named Timothy in a letter that he wrote, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2, he says this, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Because of Jesus, we are a family. We're not pretending to be a family. And that's an important thing to get through our minds and our hearts. The Apostle Paul, as he addresses churches, he does not say to them brothers because he thinks it's kind of cool, fist bump, you know, that's not what he's doing. He's reminding them that in Jesus, something has happened in their lives that is even stronger, not weaker, than their blood relationships, that they've been brought together by the cross of Jesus Christ, united under one head, Jesus as Lord, and that the relationships they have with one another should be like those of a family. Do we treat one another that way? Maybe we do treat one another like a dysfunctional family sometimes, but Jesus wants a family that is whole, not one that is split. Are you more committed to relationships in the body of Christ than to preferences? Are you more concerned with unity than with getting your way? What would that look like? Maybe it would begin if we started to learn about and care for others, not just based on what we see their preferences are in the hallway in church or something like that, but learning who they are, the unique gifts that they have, and the way that God is using them to contribute to the body of Christ. Maybe it could mean that we would stop talking about people and start praying for people like you would a member of your family that you cared about. You could develop a thicker skin and 
not be so easy to offend, like a child who storms off to their room if they don't get their way, and instead say, I'm here to fight for this family, not to fight with my family. And Paul appealed to the church that they would all agree and be of the same mind and the same judgment, but that didn't mean that they would all share the same preferences, that the church would be homogenous, like just one thing. It means that we should understand that what holds us together, Jesus, is more significant than the things that could potentially pull us apart. Personality, preferences, and pride. We all share the same mission to glorify God and make disciples of Jesus, but we're more than an organization. We are a family. And what moves the mission of the church forward is not that we all have the same preferences or that we all divide ourselves into churches where everyone has the same inclinations, but that we are commonly committed to Christ because he died for us and brought us into the family of God. So let's not fight against one another. Let's fight for one another because we've been made a family. And that brings us to the next insight concerning unity. You can be excited about Jesus. A church divided by preferences is a lame church, meaning it cannot go forward and accomplish its mission. But listen, so is a church united by preferences. A church divided by preferences is a lame church. A church united by preferences is a lame church as well. Because if the primary reason that we are together as a church is that we share common preferences, we won't be able to accomplish the mission of making disciples as effectively as we should. We'll be a club. If we're together because we all like the same styles, the same things, if what brings us together on Sundays is, is that we all really like Pastor Camellia's voice, or we all really like Pastor Stephen's preaching, or we all really like so-and-so's connect group, or, or so-and-so's Sunday school class, or this person's personality, then, then we're united around that thing, and our mission will become forwarding, moving that thing, that preference, ahead our mission will become, we want this style of music and we're gonna promote it. Or we like this pastor and his personality, so we're gonna promote them. But that's not the mission of the church. That's the mission of a club. That's the mission of a promoter. But it's not the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus isn't to promote Stephen. The mission of Jesus is not to promote a particular style of music. The mission of Jesus is that men and women all over the world would hear that he has died for their sins, that God has saved them by his resurrection, and that they would come into his family and they would know eternal life that's Jesus mission and if all we can unite on is our preferences then we will push forward an agenda and a mission that just moves those preferences forward and will miss Jesus mission you know that's not the adventure that I want for my life is that the adventure you want for your life to push your preferences forward until all you've got left is everybody around you liking the same things and looking the same way and doing the same stuff? Or is it that Jesus has called us and equipped us in the power of the Holy Spirit to do something that you and I on our own are totally incapable of, and without the work of his Holy Spirit, we will never be able to do? To do something that, if it's just our preferences, we could look successful externally, but we will never, ever be able to see the impact that God wants us to have in terms of lives transformed by the gospel. That's the adventure to which Jesus calls us. And that's what I mean when I say you should be excited about 
Jesus. You know what? When we sing a song that I don't particularly care for, I try my best to raise my hands in worship because you know what? I don't come to church because I like the songs. I come to church because I want to worship Jesus. When there's a, when there's a particular person that, that might preach the word of God and I don't like the style, as long as that person is preaching in a way that accurately handles God's word and doesn't divide the body but teaches us to rightly follow Jesus, our hearts should be to hunger for what God says not because of the personality presenting it, but because of the power of God at work in the gospel, which is able to change lives. This is our mission, church. This is what it means to be a frontier church. Many churches, many churches, have been able to put forward an agenda where their programs are smooth and they get stuff on the externals right and they look exciting. And so they promote themselves and they multiply themselves, but the question is this, are they multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ? Our goal and our mission is that we would multiply disciples of Jesus. And so when we're at church and when we're at, at work on Monday and when we're at, at, at home on Thursday evening, what should excite us should be Jesus. He's saved us, he's delivered us, and this is why Paul turns their attentions back to Jesus. Is Christ divided? Did Paul die for you? Did he give himself up on the cross for you? Did he save you? No. So why are some of you excited about Paul? And why are some of you excited about Apollos? And why are some of you all about this style? And some of you all about that thing? And some of you only concerned about that program? When what you should be excited for is Jesus. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who redeemed you. He's the one who healed you. He's the one who restored you. Be excited about him. He died. He gives new vision for life through his cross, and his mission is compelling. And we are responding to him and carrying out his mission together. And his mission is not to make the church in our image tying our preference so closely to the gospel that we can no longer discern the difference between the two. His mission is that we would make disciples, not who follow our preferences, but who follow Jesus. His mission is not to promote our pride, but to declare God's glory. You can be excited about Jesus. You want a church united? Let's have a church that can agree on this. We're excited about Jesus. We're excited about the work the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. We're excited about what he wants to do through the young, through the old. We're excited about the, the work that he's doing in all stages of life and in all kinds of people and in all different kinds of places and we're excited about how people are using their gifts to glorify Jesus. We're excited about Jesus. And that leads to the last insight concerning unity. First treat the church like family, then be excited about Jesus, not just peripheral stuff. And finally, you can remember that the cross transforms. Like the group in Corinth who claimed to follow Christ, it's possible for people today to claim to follow Jesus, but have motives that are more about self-promotion than they are about unity. People like to align themselves with someone who is perceived as a winner or who can advance their reputation, like they're some kind of advertising firm trying to get their brand out or their name out. And that was true in Corinth as, as it is now. 
We like to align ourselves with the winning sports team and claim some kind of odd participation in their victory because we sat on our couch and ate chips while they scored points, even though we had nothing to do with it. People like to be seen with those who can lift their reputation, not with those who can bring it down. We like to associate with winners. And so sometimes people claim to follow Jesus not because they're actually interested in where Jesus is leading, but because at least in the church bubble, they feel it lends some kind of clout to their position or their preferences. What they're really looking for is not where Jesus is leading, but an endorsement deal with Jesus so that the ultimate winner can be said to endorse what they are doing. But when we do this, we forget one important factor. We forget the means of Jesus' victory. Is Jesus a winner? Yeah, he is. Do you remember where he got his crown? Paul reminds us that the way Jesus became the winner was on the cross. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, Paul wasn't saying that eloquence is wrong. In fact, his writings are some of the most enduring and eloquent and substantive that we have. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is one of the most enduring pieces of poetry. You hear it read at weddings all the time. It's not that Paul wasn't eloquent or couldn't be eloquent. Paul's point is rather that we should not forget the way Jesus won and that those who follow Jesus will necessarily need to be conformed to the cross. Furthermore, if real transformation occurs in a person's life, it's not because of the style of music on a Sunday or the eloquence of the preacher or what our preferences are that we share as a church. It is just the cross of Christ. If someone's life is transformed, it is because of the cross. The phrase translated, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, may more literally be translated, lest the cross of Christ be emptied, or lest the cross of Christ be made void. In other words, the way that we do ministry, or the way that we treat one another in the church, should not void the cross. How could we void the cross? We could do that by pursuing our own power or reputation or preferences at the expense of others. We could do it by claiming Christ but not allowing his cross to shape how we relate to one another. We could void the cross by elevating our preferences to such a central place that we begin to believe that they are actually the core issue rather than preaching the cross and having a church shaped by the cross. For instance, Consider what has come to be known broadly as the worship wars that began sometime in the early 90s and have lasted for decades and are still kind of hanging on in some places of church culture. This is a conflict that has struck many churches over the style of music that should be played. Should we have just hymns? Should we have modern instruments like drums and electric guitars? Or should it just be organs and pianos? How should the worship team be dressed? How long should the time of singing last? All of these things were part of a, a, a war that took decades in the church and divided churches. And there are some significant things to be considered in those questions. But I wonder how much of it was really worth the division that it caused in churches all over our country. Churches split, people left, and more significance was given to matters of style and preference and what a particular style said about an individual 
than to the relationships that were broken along the way. And it exacerbated the public perception that already existed concerning the church that it's divided and so it cannot be trusted. How much better might it have been if people could have been shaped more by the cross and how they responded to one another? And how much better for us in our church if we will do the same Our future shouldn't be defined by competition in which the strongest team comes out on top in a war over preferences regarding styles, songs, programs, personalities. Our future as a church should be defined by a common goal to preach the cross and demonstrate in how we treat one another that we've been shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. But that's not something any one of us can do. We have to do it together. We have to decide that together we will be shaped like the cross and treat one another like Jesus. We have to decide that we aren't going to try to gain victory by associating with a winner, but by associating with Jesus who gained victory by dying on the cross. And then when we need to, to crucify our own flesh and the urges and desires that we have for our own ways with Jesus there. The trouble is, No one ever wants to go first. We're all happy about the idea of, yeah, we need to be shaped like the cross, but nobody wants to be the first person to get up on that cross because what if then somebody takes advantage of me? What if I go and they don't follow me? It's like I dare you to jump in the lake. I'll follow you, I promise. And then you jump in and you turn around, they're still sitting on the dock laughing at you, right? And that's how we feel sometimes in the church. What if I conform my life to the cross? What if I lay down my pride? What if I give up my preferences? What if I lay down my hurts, my pain, my unforgiveness, my bitterness toward this person and they don't jump in with me? That's the risk you take. Is that not the risk Jesus took when he died on the cross for you? When he laid down his life for you, did he not take the risk that he would die and you would not receive that gift? That you wouldn't, by faith, crucify your flesh to the past and live again with him? Is that not the risk he took for you? Of course it is. And that is also the risk that Jesus calls us to take for one another. That we would crucify our flesh, our preferences, and our pride and trust God with the outcome, even if others do not follow Jesus did not deserve the cross, and yet he died for us there. And that's how we must approach our relationships. Sadly, preferences and pride are a much more common cause of church division than doctrine. And whether it is strife between two believers or between two groups of people who share different perspectives, we tend to adopt an us-versus-them mentality toward other believers who do not share our opinions or who injure our pride. And of course, we're never going to agree about everything, and that is not Paul's point. He's not, again, saying you all have to be exactly alike. He's not saying that the church should be monolithic, homogenous, everybody does the same thing without any diversity of style. And of course, we can't avoid some kind of style in the church that inevitably fits what some prefer, more than what others prefer. That's just gonna happen. How could it be avoided? But the insight this passage lends is that the world's values and its ways of handling differences of opinion shouldn't enter the church. After all, we're gathered around something that is far more important than a sports team. We're gathered around our Savior, Jesus. We've been brought into his family, given a common hope, a purpose, and a mission, and we have been redeemed by his cross. And those similarities are far more significant than the preferences that too often cause strife and division. What I'm saying today is not that you should adopt my preferences about church as your preferences. 
nor that you should feel pressured to like everything the church does or anything of that nature. The message today is not get with the program. That's not the point. I'm not asking you to simply get on board. Paul was not talking about realigning ourselves around any preference. He was talking about realigning ourselves around Jesus, who has made us family, has given us a common mission which should excite us for the future and has redeemed us by the power of his cross. And we have to learn to discern the difference between our preferences, our pride, and issues of substance. And we have to learn to lay down our preferences and pride in favor of others, and particularly in favor of being unified around Jesus and shaped by his cross. And if we don't, we'll end up like Corinth. We'll be a church on a rack, pulled apart by personalities, preferences, and pride, instead of united by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's that cross that should unite us in everything we do as a church because it is the cross that is the power of God for salvation to anyone who will believe. And before we end today, that's what I wanna talk to you about. That if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you've not experienced the power of the cross and maybe even as we talked about, the power of the cross of Christ to unite, you don't understand what that is. Jesus, God's son, was sent to die for us and he died because our sin had separated us from God. And in that separation from God, we were dead. Dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, our rebellion against God. We were dead. And if you're not a believer in Jesus today, then what the scripture says to you is this, you are dead. You're walking in death, and that death isn't just physical death, it's the death of separation from God and therefore of meaning and purpose. Singing about this earlier that a lot of, actually pretty much most religions and even secularism all search for something to unify their thinking about what the universe is and what their place in the universe should be. Other religions think you're gonna join some kind of great nirvana one day and everybody will be united in this kind of universal spirit in Eastern thinking and then even in secular thinking here in the West in the United States, scientists search for a grand unifying principle by which they can explain and harmonize all their theories, especially physics theories of the universe to try to bring everything together. Why? Because everybody's looking for meaning. They wanna know what's the purpose, what's the plan, what's the point, why am I here? And you might be in that place too, trying to figure out why am I here? The good news about the cross of Jesus Christ is it gives you a purpose and a meaning. It brings all these things together and it gives you a focus and a purpose and it does it not through just asking you to try to search for that in some kind of nirvana state inside yourself or try to figure out how atoms work together or whatever in the universe, it does it because it teaches us that God created you, made you for a purpose, and that when you sinned against him, rebelled against him, he didn't leave you stuck there, but he sent his son Jesus, and he's given us testimony of what he's done, witnesses of how he's done it, that he sent Jesus who died on a cross for your sin to bear your pain, to carry your shame, to carry your purposelessness, your meaninglessness, the futility of your heart and your life in which you've been looking for, what am I doing here? He carried that with him, and it was crucified with him on the cross. All the search for truth, 
truth and for purpose in your life. He died for all of that sense of meaninglessness, all of that sense of purposelessness and the sin that caused it and was at the root of it. And when he died on the cross, God did not leave him dead because he had not sinned against God. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And we have witnesses, testimony of that fact in the word of God. And so he's told you this, that if you will believe in Jesus, if you will believe that God sent him, that he died for your sin, and that on the third day, he raised him from the dead, this is what will happen in your life. Your sin will be forgiven. Your purposelessness will be taken away. And you will be restored to the meaning that you have that is to be united with God you'll die to the life of sin and purposelessness you had and you will live to a life of meaning and of relationship with God so I want to ask you if you just close your eyes for a moment before we end service today if there's anyone here you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus you know you're separated from him the guilt of your sin weighs heavy on you the sense of meaninglessness and futility lies heavy on you this morning and today as you've heard the word of God you've believed that Jesus died and he rose again and you want to confess that you want to confess I believe this morning in Jesus and I want him to save me I want him to redeem me if that's you you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Jesus. And today, you want to begin that by confessing your belief in him. The scripture says, if you'll confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that's the opportunity you have this morning. If that's you, if you don't have that relationship, would you just lift up your hand right now? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin that relationship this morning. You're living a life where you know you're separated, filled with guilt and shame or the meaninglessness of, of, of your own feelings and you're wanting God to redeem you this morning and you want to believe in Jesus. Just lift up your hand so that I can pray with you. Is there anybody like that? If you're watching online, you can text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061. We will respond to you via text and start a conversation about how you can know Jesus. Is there anyone here in person that you don't have that relationship with God and you want to begin that this morning? Thank you. Anybody else? going to pray this morning. This prayer doesn't save you, but Jesus saves you when you put your faith in him. And I just want to help you express words and put words to that faith this morning. And as I pray, I want to encourage you to make the prayer your own, to pray it. And when the service is over and we have a time of prayer, please come and speak to one of our pastors or deacons and deaconesses or prayer partners that will be present. We would be happy to help you to understand how do I go forward from here. We've got a gift we'd like to give you, a book to help you understand how to follow Jesus. But if you raise your hand, would you please pray this prayer uh, as, I, as I lead it. Just pray it in your own heart and make it your own. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you that I've heard the good news about Jesus today, and I thank you that you've, uh, you've awakened my heart to the truth of what you've done for me. I believe today that Jesus died for me, and I believe that his punishment and his death was so that I can be forgiven, and today I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, and I ask that you would make me alive again. I need you to renew me. I need you to, to remake me. I need to be born again. And today I want to be born again in Jesus. I want to know purpose again. I want to know life again. I want to know, know your way, Lord. And I ask that you would restore me today. We thank you for that, Lord. And we worship you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Can we just celebrate for a moment what the Lord has done this morning in someone's life? The Lord says, or the Word of God says, that when someone responds to the good news about Jesus and enters God's family, when the prodigal returns, it says that heaven rejoices. When the lost are found, the angels rejoice, and we should rejoice as well. Would you stand with me, church? Here's how I want to close this morning. We talked about unity in the body of Christ, and and this is going to be a theme that we'll find in 1 Corinthians, and it's unity around the cross of Jesus. And one one sense that I get is that uh, maybe for some there, there's not the connection to family in the body of Christ. And, and that might be because you've not ever viewed the body of Christ as your family. You've never viewed the church as a family. And maybe one way that you need to respond today to the word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit is to say, I'm going to start thinking of the church like a family. I'm going to start treating the people in the church like a family, meaning I'm not going to come five minutes late and leave five minutes early so that I can avoid everybody. (laughs) But I'm going to be a part of what God is doing in this family. Maybe for others, you needed the reminder that the church is a family. And there's somebody in this family that you're at odds with and there's an unforgiveness and a bitterness in your heart toward them and you need to go to them and you need to confess that and you need to be right with them and and you you need to forgive them or you need to ask for their forgiveness and it shouldn't be dependent on what they say, it should just be that this is what you need to do as a part of this family. Maybe others, you'd say, I've been so caught up in what I prefer that I've been divided from a brother or sister in Christ because of a difference of opinion that isn't central to the gospel and I need to be excited about Jesus and his cross again. I need to get my eyes back where they should be and be excited about the mission that God has given us and not about the peripheral stuff that's going on around it. Today as I pray, I wanna ask you that if you're in a place like that, that you would just respond by lifting your hands and offering to God that thing that has caused a brokenness or a division in your own heart, in your own life, that's caused a split between you and another person, you'd offer that to God. And before God today, determine that you're gonna make that right and you're gonna begin to enter the body of Christ, the family of God in a spirit of unity and not of division. Heavenly Father, today we thank you so much for your word that teaches us how we ought to live with one another. And we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that unites us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be united and excited about Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to be torn apart over divisions and and torn apart over pride and personalities and offenses and preferences that can so often be the cause of, of ineffectiveness. Lord, we ask that we would not be united around preferences either. Help us, Lord, to learn and to discern as the body of Christ what's preference and what's cross. And help us, Lord, to be united by what Jesus has done. And I pray that you begin to shape my heart, our hearts, the life of this church in the cross of Jesus Christ, and that we would be willing to lay ourselves down to be united with others and to be a blessing to them. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask for your help in doing it because we know too often our own hearts and spirits rise up against that kind of sacrifice. And we ask that you'd help us to make it fruitfully 
and willingly. Lord, we pray that we would be a church united. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of that unity, the mission would go forward and be propelled. The mission to see disciples made, to glorify God by proclaiming the good news about Jesus so that lives are transformed and they can follow him. Lord, we ask that you'd give us strength, courage, wisdom to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, we believe. Amen. Amen. Amen.